You're listening to a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM. The interview you're about to hear is with Jess Hill. Jess Hill is an investigative journalist and an author. and She's written a new book called See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control and Domestic Abuse. Jess joined me to talk about the radical rethink we need to confront domestic abuse in Australia. Please be aware that the content that we discuss in this interview may be distressing for some listeners. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. And of course, this second uh, interview for today's show is what I think is really a very important discussion that we need to be having. And I really can't think of a better person to be having this conversation with in terms of the expertise that Jess has amassed in terms of her reporting as an investigative journalist, but also the research that she's done for this book is immense and every page screams out to me and it is somewhat distressing to read but it's necessary of course in terms of understanding this issue which is very complex and perhaps can often be reduced to uh, stereotyping and a lot of misconceptions that we might have. So Jess Hill is joining me via Skype and we're going to be speaking about her new book See What You Made Me Do Power, Control and Domestic Abuse It's published by Black Ink and uh, Jess joins me now and I welcome you now there. Hi, Jess. G'day, Amy. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Um, So, um, well, I've got to say, first of all, this book is... It probably took words out of my mouth when I read it. I honestly was my probably my mouth was on the floor uh, reading it, and that's coming from a person myself who has worked in the gender equality space in particular for many years. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, this is one of the most useful and groundbreaking books I've read on this issue. So thank you, first of no. all, for writing it. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, well, that feeling of having your mouth on the floor. That's what I had every other day for, you know, three and a half years um, when I was writing it. And I think, you know, when you're writing about this kind of subject material, which has been written about at least in the last few years a lot, uh, you do have to reach that bit deeper for what is going to be compelling. And I think I really made a rule that I wanted to write for people who had no idea about domestic abuse and didn't think they knew anyone who'd been through it, which, of course... We, we all know is not true, um, and for people who'd been studying this for years, uh, which is a broad audience, and, um, yes. and to do that, you had to, I had to really uh, both interrogate sort of old ideas that we'd just come to accept, but also really only include the stuff that after three and a half years was still surprising me mm. um, and was still really switching me on. So that's why I think in the end I'm really surprised surprised by how many people have said they've read the book like a novel because I thought that they would like pick up one chapter and just go oh I can't read any more of that for another week yes (laughs) I can understand that yeah that that might be some people's response and I did mention just before the announcements that um, some of the things that we'll discuss might be triggering for people who've experienced abuse or assault physically, emotionally, sexually. So um, if anyone is listening and they need to tune out because of the content, um, it's obviously okay and uh, they can come back in whenever they need. But yeah, it is such an important conversation to have. Before we jump right into it, I just wanted to highlight how I first came across you and your work, which was through the ABC and your work as a foreign correspondent. Ah, yeah, that feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah. I just remember um, Mark Colvin being a really important person um, to you, I I guess, looking on from Twitter and listening on ABC, PM and AM. And I wonder, you know, going to uh, sometimes war zones would have been quite confronting and would have its own issues. But in terms of also this topic, I wonder whether there's also similar levels of emotional toll that that this kind of work Mm. might take. Yeah, I guess, you know, in the Middle East, you know, I was in lots of riots and um, and places that had experienced enormous traumas. But you were always connecting directly with people. And I guess the other thing was it, it wasn't 
it wasn't a trauma that belonged to me in any way. I was a foreigner in somebody else's country trying to make sense of what was going on for people back home or, you know, for, for readers. Um, I guess with domestic abuse, what is so confronting is that everything that you're looking at does belong to you. It's it's in us. You know, we all have the capacity for great cruelty, although, you know, thankfully a lot of us don't um, exert it. But we also all have our own struggles with power and control in our relationships. We all have struggles with intimacy. We, we've all experienced the types of things that can lead to an abusive relationship. We've all been in, in grey zones, I'm sure. You know, anyone who's had a few relationships has had those, you know, creeping feelings that something's not right or that there's a power imbalance. And we've all experienced, you know, the effects of male entitlement. Um, and, I, and I would say that, you know, Men too, a lot of men too have experienced the effects of male entitlement because it doesn't only affect women. Um, and so I guess, you know, in trying to interrogate that landscape, it meant that I had to look really deep into my own character and the character of my marriage and my husband's character and my family's character and look and try to really interrogate it from the inside out, even though I don't have a personal history with domestic abuse. Um, although, you know, as I discovered, Actually, there's domestic abuse threaded um, throughout my um, family, you know, going back a couple of generations and has affected a lot of my friends, things that I didn't know before I started writing about this. But that personal interrogation was actually one of the most confounding and, I guess, disturbing elements of it. And, you know, being married and writing a book about domestic abuse that you're writing pretty much full time for almost four years, that's not... It's not like recommended no. <laughs> for a healthy marriage because when you're writing about, you know, not only, you know, sexual assault, violence, um, but also that thing about male entitlement, the effects of patriarchy, all those things you're constantly looking for. Well, how do I see that cropping up in my own relationship? And you don't really mm. want to have that lens on your relationship for that long. So I found it much more difficult to write about this than I ever did you know, writing or reporting on the Middle East. Mm, that does make a lot of sense. And I think it would be difficult for any reader reading this book to not constantly reflect on their relationships and their families' relationships and people they know and mm. to start to question whether there is a lot of things that we aren't seeing that perhaps even our friends don't tell us is happening. Mm. Uh, because as you, there's so many things that um, are debunked in this book, but one of them is this idea that it only happens to a certain group of people from, you know, certain socioeconomic backgrounds or education levels. And these are all, you know, misconceptions that many people might have about who is affected directly by domestic abuse. But first, could we address the terminology? Because you do that straight away in your book mm -hmm. and say that you've deliberately chosen the, the term uh, domestic abuse instead of domestic violence or family violence, which are often commonly used in this space by government and and um, community groups. What was your rationale and thinking behind that change? So it happened quite late and I felt a real resistance to changing the term in the book from domestic violence to domestic abuse. I'd seen that the uh, police in the UK regularly used domestic abuse um, as a term, but it wasn't until I read this opinion piece from Yasmin Khan, who wrote, uh, he, she runs Eadfest Community Services in Brisbane, and she wrote this article basically saying that many of the women that they supported, um, and they you know support particularly um, Muslim women from the subcontinent, that they would assure her that there'd never been any domestic violence because he'd never laid a hand on me. But when they'd ask more questions about the relationship, they'd find out that, that that woman had been abused in some of the most horrific ways for years, in ways that were just as damaging and potent because it was about control, domination, humiliation, degradation, threats, um, and a total limit on that woman's autonomy. And so Khan really made it her mission to replace domestic violence with domestic abuse because if we just talk about violence we're sending a message that there's only a serious issue when there's been something when something physical has occurred. And mm. I would be asked so often 
whenever I do sort of panels or appear in public talking about this, there'd always be at least one question from the audience saying, how are you going to deal with the fact that a lot of domestic abuse is not physical? And I'd sort of, you know, talk around the answer and I'd, I'd give what I thought was a reasonable response, but it was all, it always didn't feel like enough. Mm. And this is how I felt. This is enough. This is actually what we need to do because we don't talk about child violence because child abuse takes in all sorts of different things, especially things like neglect. And it's not just about the physical violence. And the same way for domestic violence, you know, at the core of domestic violence, it's not physical violence. Really at the core of domestic violence or domestic abuse is humiliation and degradation. That That is the core around which everything happens. The physical violence is just another way of imposing that on the victim and it's it's just a tool and it's a tool that not all perpetrators use though there's plenty of perpetrators who will use um who will just use incredibly sophisticated methods of humiliation and degradation um and and mind games and they will get the effect they want which is a woman who doesn't really know herself anymore who has no sense of or very little sense of self-worth and who basically has taken in or has has replaced her own perspective with her perpetrator's perspective so that every every move that she makes she's trying to think will he be okay with that what will he think of this will there will there be any consequences if i do that and over time she just be, she just starts to inhabit the perpetrator and lose a sense of who she is and what she wants. I mean, what she wants is not only inconsequential, it's actually dangerous because what she wants could provoke another either controlling or violent response. Um, so I really wanted to make send a message to all of those women for whom either the physical violence was not present or it wasn't important to say that you are included, this affects you, and we know that the violence is not the most important part and I think there's one quote that I didn't actually end up including in the book, weirdly enough, but I actually think it summarises the entire book and it comes from the Talmud and it says, humiliation is worse than physical pain. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's certainly really interesting. And some of the women that you quote directly from the interviews that you've undertaken would often say that, um, yeah, that wasn't the main thing and although the physical if there was physical violence it was in some cases very extreme it was other Mm. elements that were more front of mind or more affecting and more um, catastrophic in a way than that which is the most visible yeah and it took longer for them to overcome and you know and everybody says this the women who work in domestic violence shelters or work in advocacy work they say that the women overwhelmingly the counseling work that they do with women is to is to overcome the effects of humiliation and degradation and fear um the physical wounds i mean sometimes the physical wounds are permanent and terrible i mean i'm not discounting mm. the physical violence in domestic abuse one iota um but you know there's just you you just hear the same thing from women over and over again that's that's not what ended up almost destroying me um and not to mention the fact that you also hear from women saying i actually wish he'd just hit me so then other people would believe it was happening but also so then she would believe it was happening and that's why you know perpetrators who don't use violence they don't use violence for a reason because when violence when physical violence occurs it's like a warning bell the psychological violence flies under the radar it's that proverbial frog in the boiling pot effect it just gets warmer and warmer and warmer until you realize that you're boiling and it's and now it's really dangerous and for women in these situations the degradation the humiliation it just keeps on going but it it starts small and then it grows and grows and grows until you don't even realize it's happening anymore and if you've been isolated from your supportive connections you don't necessarily talk to people about it and if they and if you do maybe they don't quite believe you because hey, the guy seems quite fine outside of the relationship. So you start to really doubt what's happening to you and you don't even know if it qualifies as domestic abuse. And I can tell you, like, I have so many women coming up to me at public events that I'm doing saying, you just described my partner. 
and either they'll then describe a situation that absolutely qualifies as domestic abuse and, you know, we talk about what the next steps that they might take, or they describe a situation that has all of the red flags but but maybe isn't domestic abuse just yet and maybe never will be um, in the sense that, you know, the guy might be sabotaging her work prospects, might be making it really difficult for her to see friends, might be threatening suicide, all of these things that are tick, tick, tick in domestic abuse. She doesn't feel unsafe, though, and she doesn't think that he would ever escalate. But it's this weird grey zone where you're like, well, it sounds like abuse and it is abusive behaviour, but is it something that would warrant calling police or leaving? I don't know. Sometimes it's really hard to say. And when I was writing the book, I was absolutely dead set against the idea that there was any type of grey zone yeah, that it was all. It was either or. It was you were or you weren't. And I've since learnt that's just not the case. And that's really what women experience. Indeed. And to put this into a bit of context and perspective uh, for people who are wondering about the scale of the issue, I mean, you raise in the book the fact that it is very difficult to have reliable statistics on a range of things and because we're relying on people who actually do end up reporting the things they experience. So often people don't report what's happened to them and so we're possibly not seeing the full picture and scale of what is happening in Australia. But you quote some important statistics of what we do know, which is that in every country around the world, the home is the most dangerous place for a woman and that of 87,000 women killed globally in 2017, more than a third were killed by an intimate partner plus another 20,000 were killed by a family member. And in Australia, who we currently have a population of around 25 million, one woman a week is killed by a man she's been intimate with. So, I mean, that kind of, I think, highlights that things are serious and they're only getting more serious um, in terms of the other stats you raise around seeing an increase in domestic abuse incidents by 83% in just five years. This, it seems to have become more and more urgent, even though it's been around, as you highlight through this book, for centuries. Yeah, and I guess, you know, it's important to distinguish the increase um, in reports, which has been happening, that, you know, 83% is a, a an increase in reports to police. And now, on any given day, Victoria Police say that they're dealing with 40 to 60%, um, of 40 to 60% of their work is dealing with domestic abuse call-outs. But also, you know, what you're citing as well there is what I heard from domestic violence helplines and um, and from people working in this area, that they actually have data to show that the incidence and severity of the assaults is getting worse and that there are a, there's a greater percentage of the women who are calling who are in need of emergency assistance. So what they're sort of looking at is that there's something going on where it's the just the nature of the violence is getting worse. Yeah. And I'm really interested in highlighting something that you do early on in the book to give us some perspective, which is this fascinating uh, and quite disturbing example you provide around this issue that occurred in the Korean War and we saw uh, American prisoners of war really change drastically in their time um, which in which they were held in captivity and quite differently from um, some of the other situations we've seen in other wars for in other countries and the types of methods used by the the people holding them captive are so similar to domestic abuse that it was used as this very important case study and a grounding of understanding how coercion and control um, works. Could you share with us that example? Yeah, sure. So Basically, yeah, I mean, this, this type of domestic abuse, remembering that domestic abuse isn't all the same, mm. there's a type of domestic abuse that we now call coercive control. Um, and that's the kind of abuse where domination and control, isolation, micromanagement of behaviour, this is all part of a system that the perpetrator uses to eradicate uh, their partner's self-worth and, and to keep them under a kind of control. And the first time 
that we ever had that system really outlined was by a social scientist with the US Air Force uh, in the 1950s. And the reason that we got this information was that because US soldiers who were taken prisoner in the Korean War were taken to North Korean camps run by Chinese communists, and they started cooperating with their captors in ways that was utterly unprecedented. They were informing on fellow prisoners. They were, uh, you know, going on radio and um, extolling the virtues of communism and decrying Western capitalism. I mean, all of these things were utterly unheard of. Other prisoner of war situations, uh, the soldiers would be staunch. They would refuse to cooperate in any way. And there were a lot of very serious codes about that. Not to mention the fact that after the war was over, a number of American soldiers actually defected to communist China. So there was this absolute panic uh, among the American populace, among the media, but also at the you know the highest levels of the CIA that the um, that the Chinese communists and the Soviets had some form of magical brainwashing, um, and they had basically replaced the soldiers' thoughts with with their own sort of design, with their own information. And and they started sort of talking about, you know, developing these weapons themselves. It got to a really extreme level. This social scientist, um, Albert Biederman, looked at it and just went, that doesn't make any sense. This sounds like propaganda, not science. And so he went and talked to the returned servicemen about what they'd experienced in these camps. And he got the same basic story from all of them that essentially when they were first captured, the um, the captors would come up to them, slap them on the back, call them comrades, say that they were for the workers of America, hand them cigarettes, make them feel that even though they were being captured by who they thought to be the enemy, they were going to be looked after and it was okay. That was about establishing trust. Then they got taken to the camps and there are eight different but quite um, clear techniques that were used against these soldiers. Obviously, isolation was the first one. But then there was this thing where they would monopolise their perception. They would basically make them look inwards as to what was going on for them, how they were creating this situation in a strange way that I'll explain in a minute. Um, then there was the um, alternating with uh, punishments with rewards, threats, degradation, demonstrating omnipotence, so basically demonstrating that no matter where that the soldier went, whether they escaped from the camp, whether they were back in America, they would never be safe and their friends and family would never be safe. And it was this basically slow way of messing with the soldiers' minds between thinking that the that their captors were for them and that they were going to protect them and then slowly eradicating their sense of self-worth to the point where they had to capitulate, that the, the, the price of resisting would be greater than the price of capitulation. Um, and that's how they got them to cooperate to this unprecedented extent. Now, when in the 80s, or well, like sort of, sort of late 70s, after the um, domestic violence shelters were opened, the women who were coming to these shelters started telling these stories, not just of, you know, broken bones and black eyes, but of these systematic campaigns of control. And it wasn't until about the early 80s when somebody pulled out Albert Biederman's chart of coercion. It detailed these eight techniques that have been used in the camps in North Korea. And they looked at the common techniques that domestic violence survivors would describe, and they were almost identical. And what we've since discovered is actually the tactics used by um, coercive controllers in domestic abuse are basically identical to the tactics used by cult leaders, by pimps, by um, by certain um, cap certain prisoner of war camps, they're all the same, and it's basically what is necessary to gain power over another person. And so, I think one of the things that struck me when you were giving this example and using it as a way into this subject was that there was really one thing that demonstrated that in many of these cases, and the majority of the cases, it's the woman who is on the end of this behaviour and and they're in this relationship, um, it's often a, an intimate partner relationship. And one of those sticking points or one of those things that is so um, even more concerning and difficult in this, the situation of an intimate relationship is that the first stage, which was about in the in the case of war there, you know, establishing um, trust and saying, hi there, comrade, and, you know, 
building a sense of familiarity and maybe a false mm-hmm. sense of friendship. This was even greater for women in an intimate relationship because there was an establishment of love, of sentiment, of trust, of um, emotion and, you know, personal investment in the relationship for a number of perhaps days, months, years, depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. And um, and that, as you've said in the book, and what really struck me was showed just how resilient and strong the women are that they have that to contend with in this particular power dynamic. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's they have no clue that the person that they're dealing with is is a potential enemy. That's very different from soldiers being taken captive. And even soldiers found it almost impossible to resist um, the, the techniques, of course, of control. And I think what, you know, what we forget with um, with women in these situations is is how we are when we first go into an intimate relationship. We give away a lot. We have to in order to bring that person into our space and to really, like, connect with that person. We are excited about the future with them. We share things with them that we may not have shared with anybody before. You know, we create this sense of oneness, right, where that person becomes like our other half. That's what we say, that they're our other half. So Mm. when your other half, when the person you have led in, not just to your bed and to your home, but into your soul, into your heart, starts behaving like an enemy, the first thing you're going to do is probably disbelieve it or think there's a way, it's an aberration and there's a way to fix it because that's not the person you fell in love with, right? And it can take women years months, years, maybe maybe it will never occur to them that actually it's not an aberration, that behaviour, that is a part of that person that may or may not ever be reformed and that love won't be enough. They won't be able to fix that person unless that person does the work to fix themselves. And so many women will look at these relationships like projects. And, and what's even worse is that the stronger a woman is sometimes the more that she will identify with using her personal strength to help him overcome his abusiveness mm-hmm. and that then becomes a tool for the perpetrator and when i say a tool a lot of this stuff i mean there are some perpetrators who are very conscious about what they're doing but they're a minority a lot of this stuff is coming on a level of instinct even though the people the men who are conscious of what they're doing and the men who are less conscious of what they're doing actually do the same things the level of consciousness is is really important to understand um because a lot of this is behavior not necessarily tactics you know um and they may start to act tactically when they feel like they're about to be left or the woman's about to cheat on them which is you know a morbid paranoia held by a lot of these types of men but actually it's coming from this place for a lot of guys um of of fear of a sense that they will be disrespected and of a deep found a deep felt sense of entitlement so deep they would never be able to name it as entitlement but the, basically the sense that they should be able to do whatever they need to in order to secure their partner and to secure what they want and whether their partner wants it or not doesn't matter <laughs> you know and that's I mean the level of entitlement that is present in perpetrators is um is almost to the level of, you know, of being pathological. I mean, that the entitlement is so enormous. Um, and it's something that sometimes when we're talking about, oh, you know, let's try and understand the men who are doing this, let's understand them as having their own wounds and all the rest of it, it's really important that we don't forget that that part is deeply connected to their sense of entitlement to use violence or abuse in order to get what they think is due to them. Mm. And when we're talking about um, the victims or and or survivors, really they're both. Um, we you you cite some really interesting examples, and I guess you share an overview of how the perception of the victim has evolved and changed over time. And uh, it's quite disturbing, really. I mean, of course, typically Sigmund Freud comes up, and as he does always, <laughs> yes. About 
Exactly. And and I'm a little bit dismayed that he comes up so often in, in other things that I um, research and study in a serious way because uh, obviously some of his um, theories were really damaging and still are damaging. But mm. one of those things that um, was really interesting to me was this evolution of the woman as initially the passive damsel in distress who's just dealing with a, perhaps a drunken husband who comes home and, you know, beats his wife. Then it moves into this Freudian theory around uh, women being masochistic. Uh, I'd mm. really like for you to explain that theory and then how it moved on again and how that is actually directly impacting us today and and has been in the past because I I hadn't really been aware that it had shifted over time and it had really reflected some of these key moments in psychological theory. Yeah, well, that's why, you know, the name of your program um, is really good because this whole thing of uncommon sense um, is something that I really try to highlight in the book is that, Mm. like, we think that we are responding to situations with our common sense. And so common sense is just an instinct and it's utterly natural and that you know that we must follow this common sense um, because it's 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 you know it's the most natural way to respond to something. But actually, our common sense is something that's been built for us by people like Freud, by filmmakers, by other cultural um, you know um, you know writers, songwriters, other cultural products. And what we what we come out with is actually uncommon sense. Um, <laughs> it's actually constructed brick by brick for us. And I guess, you know, the, the move from the damsel in distress, who was, by the way, still probably provoking her husband, was the, you know, general sense, mm. was really so in the 19th century and, and, you know, prior to that, where men were really cast as these drunken louts who would use incredible brutality against their, their wives um, and that these wives lived lives of Dickensian misery. Um, that was a... so. At that time, you know, women didn't really feel like there was much choice. It was a very rare woman who would pick up and leave. And if she did, she could kiss goodbye to her children because the fathers had ultimate custodial rights over the children. So it was a huge deal for a woman to leave a situation and the vast majority didn't. But in the early 20th century, women started to go to social workers and say that they'd had enough because there was this sort of, you know, the beginning of that first wave of feminism, women were fighting for the vote. And a big part of fighting for the vote was about fighting for autonomy. It was about getting a way, uh, finding a way to be autonomous from their husbands and, and independent women. It was a big part of the suffragette movement. And so they started to sort of really front up and say, hey, well, I've had enough. I'm not going to put up with this. I'm going to leave him. And, you know, it's hard to say chicken and the egg. I mean, Freud's theories had been around for a while but social workers started to pick up on the Freudian theory of women's masochism uh, and basically started to frame these women as having wanted their secretly wanted their abuse, unknown even to themselves, were secretly gratified by their abuse because they actually were the controlling and domineering ones and they felt like the abuse was their just desserts. I mean, it is utterly crazy, but this theory of women's masochism that actually they secretly like it really stuck around until the 1970s and is still in a lot of people's minds. When people, when women say they don't leave mm. or they haven't left or they've kept on going back or whatever, a lot of people will still say, oh, she just likes the drama. Oh, she secretly likes it, you know. I mean, there's there's a lot of misconception. And when people look at that woman's behaviour, sometimes they think, well, I'm, seeing, I'm looking at a behaviour and that's obvious. It's only obvious because you've got that lens on it and that lens comes from a certain place. And the social workers that were really putting that lens on the women, a lot of it was because they were threatening the nuclear family. And that was basically ground zero. I mean, that's ground zero for the patriarchy. Like the nuclear family is where the man has absolute ultimate control. And if women are going to try to challenge that and say, no, I'm going to leave, that is so threatening to the basic building blocks of society that it just – it just had to be stamped out, and that mm. was an instinctive move. On, I mean, you know, social workers weren't weren't thinking in lines of the patriarchy and how to protect it, but it was an instinctive move from them to then demonise the women. And then in the seventies, along came uh, Lenore Walker, a psychologist, and a whole new theory, which she called battered women syndrome or battered woman syndrome, 
And um, and she also came up with this idea of the cycle of violence, which was this whole, you know, how violence would work in a relationship, that it would be, you know, build, 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 explosion, apology, false honeymoon, remorse, back to normal, build, 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 and so forth, from, you know, all around the cycle. And that cycle itself was trapping because the false honeymoon and the remorse part was what drew, drew women back in. Now, that cycle of violence does apply to a lot of relationships, but the battered woman syndrome that Lenore Walker described was essentially she, she compared women to dogs who had been experimented on who, were, who would go to uh, – they were in an enclosure, they would go to the fence and they would get an electric shock. And they would get the electric shock so many times before they stopped looking for the fence and stopped looking for a way out. And eventually the dogs forgot how to even escape. Even if the door was open to them, they wouldn't go to it for fear that they'd be shocked. That was a defence that lawyers used for women who killed their husbands. It became a a really um, influential idea on what happened to women, that they basically became passive, helpless creatures in these relationships. And, I mean, that was was an improvement (laughs) on masochism, (laughs) but... It was. It didn't really challenge the status quo, and that's why it was so popular because mm. it still cast women as helpless victims. What yeah. happened afterwards was actual research with women. <laughs> Fancy that. Um, uh, looking at their actual behaviours in these relationships, and the theory that really came after battered woman syndrome was survivor theory, and was based on interviews with thousands of women in um, in shelters in Texas. And what it depicted was that actually what women were experiencing domestic abuse relationships was an ongoing war of survival where every minute was something they had to get through. Mm. And basically what no one had been talking about was the nature of women's resistance. And women's resistance in relationships could be violent, it could be nonviolent, it could be passive-aggressive, it could be any type of any way that they could exhibit some sort of resistance to what was being done to them and that actually they sought help all the time. They sought help from friends, family, social services, police, hospitals, and those people repeatedly failed them. And it wasn't the electric shock they were getting that made them forget how to get out. It was the fact that when they did try either to get out or to seek help, they were constantly turned down, disappointed, disbelieved, even put in greater danger so that they knew that the only person that they could rely on was themselves to find their own safety and that sometimes the best safety they could get was inside the relationship because actually the danger would escalate if they left. So that was that was really – that's where we are now really. This survivor theory is the most relevant to the actual experience of women, um, that actually what they do is they do their best to survive. They do their best, you know, in most cases to help their children survive and they use whatever means are at their disposal to do that. Um, And, you know, in amongst that, there is all sorts of other factors around love and around loyalty and around, you know, that, that complicate and make things more difficult. But... Ultimately, they are not suffering from some kind of pathology. They are women who have found themselves in incredibly difficult and dangerous situations that may have sprung up overnight and they are doing their best to survive them. Mm. And you talk about the fact and you've referenced there that there are so many different forms of resistance and, you know, a lot of it presumably plays out internally, um, you know, every day of someone's life when they're in this situation. Um, One of the examples that I really found affecting was the example of um, the trauma surgeon and how her child really was so caught up in this and even though she was abused in many ways including sexually assaulted so regularly um, it was also you know her child that was the thing she was particularly concerned by and what she still has to focus on daily and I'm interested in Mm -hmm. the 
the like particularly that example and what it illustrates about the complexity of this issue and the types of um, decision making and processes that women have to go through, particularly with the legal system the way it is, because you also say that she, you know, being uh, she's a doctor and mm. she essentially now is impoverished um, because of the legal fees, because of the fact that she continually has to protect herself. I'm really interested in some of the examples that you provide in this book that really illuminate just how complex this kind of issue is. Yeah, sure. So that that example, the woman I call Sarah in the book, yeah, she was a, um, she was a doctor who was married to a man who was, you know, charismatic, loving, um, a total advocate for female empowerment, everything that, you know, would would be um, telling you that the relationship is something to invest in. And um, she fell pregnant and overnight he changed. And he didn't just change into someone who was a bit insecure, needy, maybe a bit abusive. He changed into someone who was an absolute tyrant. Um and over time, it's like he basically got triggered into a into a space where he needed to be he needed to be the patriarch in the family. He needed to be in control. Um, he used threats and sexual violence against her almost relentlessly. He raped her in labor twice. Um, and then when her baby was born, she was you know she had a lot of health issues. And she had to be on oxygen at home. And he had this sense that, well, nothing would be wrong with my baby. Um, and he would make it difficult for her to call um, ambulances. He would turn off her breathing monitor machine. I mean, the sorts of behaviour that is just incredibly dangerous um, for starters, but also just something that this woman, Sarah, had to put up with and had to try to get through every day. Um, now, being a strong and intelligent woman, Sarah treated who Carl, her partner, almost like a psych patient. So he made she made sure that he never had anything to worry about. He'd have his prepared for him. He'd be able to go to the gym to let off steam. You know, she thought that if he she could just manage the situation, that he would return back to the person that she knew before. That this was just some like almost psychotic break that he was experiencing. And it wasn't until there was a um, as a week that started with there was a Q and A program on domestic abuse, and they were talking about the women who'd been killed that year. And he started ranting and raving, saying those women deserved it. It's their, you know, it's the men that they were with who were the real victims. And you know, this is a man who was in counselling at the time, was receiving treatment. I mean, she was doing everything right. She told everyone about it doctors, nurses, psychologists. There's no secrecy about it. She went to the psychologist that he was seeing and explained what had happened. And he said, oh, I think a lot of men would have been upset about what happened on Q&A that night. I think it's, you know, the behavior is not abnormal. But she was so alarmed by it, she reported it to police. And then within a week, their their young girl, their little girl who was uh, still a baby, was crying really unusually at night wouldn't just wouldn't settle and at one point after trying to settle her he jumped out of bed jumped into the cot and started watch what um, Sarah could see on the baby monitor started shaking the baby so violently that when Sarah saw it she rushed into the room and what she saw was what she thought would would have brought on an intracranial hemorrhage now that night she was so afraid of what he might do. She had to call the ambulance in secret, knowing that if she call, if he heard her calling the ambulance, she thought he he might kill them both. So she calls the ambulance, thinking that this is actually she's going to be sitting there holding her baby in her arms and having to say goodbye. And being a doctor, knowing how serious that that assault is, then she the ambulance comes. The baby, thankfully is fine. Sarah leaves Carl, but she has to manage Carl afterwards. There's no, it's not just a matter of leaving. It's a process of leaving. And it's not up to Sarah as to whether she gets to leave because it's up to Carl as to whether he will let her leave. So even though she's left the relationship in the months following, 
she still has to facilitate contact between Carl and her little girl, supervised contact that's supervised by her parents, in order to try to keep him calm, to stop him from going to family court and trying to get custody because she knows that when men try to get custody through the family court, even when and, – and Carl registered a conviction for this assault on the child, but even when that's present, that's no guarantee that they won't get access to the child. And if that access is unsupervised, she's, you know, absolutely terrified that her little girl will end up being the next Darcy Freeman, mm. that, he, that she will lose it one day and he will end up just, you know, throwing her out of the car or doing something totally drastic. Um, so – that's something that she manages every day. She has to manage ongoing legal fees through the court cases that continue to spiral out of that relationship, such to the point where she's basically living on food vouchers, even as she gets work again um, in the medical profession. Now, as a result of all of this and what is not um, talked about in the book, but um, after publication, she's now in family court having to fight him for custody. It's costing her hundreds of thousands of dollars that she doesn't have. She's working Mm -hmm. insane work weeks just to try to pay the lawyers. So this is not just a situation that occurs in a relationship. It's a situation that occurs in a relationship. It occurs afterwards. It occurs through the legal system. It keeps going. For so many women, it keeps going. It may keep going for decades, even after the children are no longer young enough to be subject to a custody ruling. They will still, the men will still keep using the legal system in any way they can to try to trap their partners, to try to be part of their partners' lives, to try to keep this obsession going. It's just crushing for a lot of women. And that's that's the part, that's the very public part of domestic abuse that the public often doesn't recognise. Mm. I'm speaking with Jess Hill, who is an investigative journalist, and she's written this um, amazing book, See What You Made Me Do. And uh, we've been speaking about some really harrowing issues. So thank you for bearing with us. I do want to get to what is the crux of the book as well, which is really about A lot of people listening to this might wonder how on earth a a human being could do this to another human being and why this happens and what the real solutions are because they seem to be really importantly interconnected. And as you've highlighted, you know, of course, uh, cultural change and social change takes a very long time in terms of social attitudes and stereotypes. And the Victorian government, for example, has been uh, putting on ad campaigns around respecting women but there's a lot more that needs to be done beyond public awareness campaigns and I'd really like to to get to the nitty-gritty in terms of this idea of the solutions that perhaps we're not fully embracing or not realising might be um, where we should be directing our attention. So... At the moment, the federal government, particularly through the fourth national action plan to reduce violence against women and their children, is really um, putting a lot of emphasis on primary prevention. And primary prevention is basically like what you described as, you know, the attempt to, um, to change attitudes and gendered norms within the community that are believed to underpin domestic abuse and that in doing so, we will actually, we will reduce the statistics over time but this is a very long project that may take decades to achieve. It is also quite experimental. It's not been done anywhere else to this extent. Even in the Scandinavian countries where there's better structural gender equality, the attempt to change norms, gendered norms, aren't being attempted in, in any way like what we're doing in Australia. So this is a an experimental model which is looking at basically fix, stopping violence before it starts. Um, and doing things like respectful relationships in schools and that sort of thing. I think that's absolutely vital work for Australia because actually that type of work is not just looking at, you know, problems around domestic abuse. It's looking at problems around bullying. It's looking at uh, problems around workplace harassment. I mean, these things are all interconnected. So this primary prevention work and this experiment that we're doing is absolutely um, groundbreaking, world-leading and important. But when it comes to the actual experience of violence that women, children and men are having right now, that primary prevention work doesn't promise to protect them in the short term at all. And 
really what the government has said um, with this last iteration of the action plan that they've just launched is that they've surrendered the idea of actually reducing domestic abuse in the short term and have jumped totally on the primary prevention train of saying that nothing will change, the statistics will not be reduced until we change our um, the gendered norms in our culture, which is funny coming from a coalition government um, given their woman problem, as people have put it. <laughs> um, yeah, this is not this is not a party that we that we generally um, align with great strides in gender equality um, and treatment of women. So, but you know. That aside, what I cannot help coming back to is how do we help the women and children who are living in fear right now? What are we doing to, to make them safe? What do we do to stop basically them having to take responsibility for their own safety, which is essentially the position they're in now? It's up to them to call the police. It's up to them to figure out how to leave. It's up to them to do the leaving it's up you know there's so much responsibility on them to to create their own safety in situations that are so incredibly dangerous for them that it's hard for anybody to imagine just the level of threat that a lot of these people are living under unless they've lived with it themselves um and just how especially in coercive control the perpetrator has demonstrated their omnipotence either through you know, following them around or literally installing surveillance apps on their phones or GPS trackers in their cars, as was done in one refuge in Victoria, uh, it was seen that 80 to 85% of women who arrived had some kind of tracking device attached to them. The level of threat that these women are living with and children is absolutely off the scales. Now, the message that we're currently sending to perpetrators, especially through the very inconsistent justice response, is that if you're not so clumsy as to cause serious physical harm to your partner, you probably get away with it. And in fact, even if you do cause them serious harm, you're probably not going to be punished to any great extent, not, not to the point where, you, you know, your life is, is seriously hampered. You, you know, you got a good chance of getting away with it and of remaining invisible, that's what I want to see change um, and it's what a lot of people want to see change, obviously not just me. Mm. Um, and what we've seen in solutions that work and, I mean, even saying that, when I was re researching the book, so many people I spoke to and said, well, what works? What does produce domestic abuse right now? And so many people said nothing. We don't know of anything that works. We can't point to anywhere that has really significantly reduced domestic abuse. Now, that's actually just not true. I think that there, a lot of that there is a belief that we cannot stop perpetrators, that they're fundamentally irrational and that there is no way to interrupt their offending. But actually, what we've seen in two examples, one locally here in Burke in New South Wales, which had one of the highest domestic violence rates um, in the state, but also overseas in a place called High Point, was that a community-led um, program and strategy that basically put domestic abuse as a number one priority. And in High Point, North Carolina, the police essentially declared domestic abuse the number one public safety threat. When you get collaboration between the justice system, police, obviously, community sector, drug and alcohol, mental illness, homelessness sectors, domestic violence sectors, when everybody who is working on this issue, often in isolation, comes together and decides to prioritise it together, work together on individual cases, and where there's this kind of carrot and stick off it, where basically the community sector can say to the perpetrators that we love and respect you and we want you to come back into the fold, we want you to be productive and, and welcome members of our community again, but if you don't stop your behaviour, then you are going to get a very swift and serious response from the justice system and if that's a promise that they can keep because the justice system is on board, which is what happened in High Point, basically the justice system would prioritise cases of domestic abuse and would punish them to the extent, that the fullest extent of what they could manage and even to the point where they would they would make other misdemeanours, they would, they would punish them for other misdemeanours, even parking fines or things like small-time crimes like larceny, they would get longer sentences for, all as a, as a attempt to create 
a consistent deterrent. But the point is you can't do, you can't fix domestic violence just through amped up policing or just through better community response. You need it all working in concert. And the fact is all of these different um, elements are actually working overtime on this issue already. When you put them together, they just become more effective and you actually see a reduction. So in High Point, for example, where they had this incredible program and, you know, and the the art of reconciling all of those sectors is something that took a couple of years. I mean, it takes a lot of work. I'm not suggesting you just shove them all in a room and hope that it'll work out. Um, but what they found is that they went from a city that had um, a domestic homicide rate that was much higher than the national average. They cut that domestic homicide rate by two-thirds. In Burke, where they similarly had a situation where the community was teaming up with police to make perpetrators more visible, to be much more present um, at the, you know, in perpetrators um, and victims' lives, but with the help of community leaders so that it wasn't just police coming into, you know, particularly Indigenous homes and being the power. It was police coming in with community leaders. It was police coming in with people from the unemployment sector saying, we can help you, you know, fix problems that are going on in your life to make it easier for you to stop your violence, they found that their domestic violence assault rate went down by 40%. You know, there are solutions that work and there are solutions that work like in the next few years, not sometime in the never-never when our culture magically changes, if it ever does. Yeah. So that's where I'm coming from is I, I want to see us treat it like the national emergency it actually is. And to, to have the sectors come together and stop working at cross purposes, because at the moment there's a lot of these sectors will work almost in competition with one another. And they'll be working with the same people, the alcohol and drug people will be working with the same client as the domestic violence people. And they may not even know that they're working with the same people. They're not, they're often, more often than not, not collaborating. So we can see tens of millions of dollars being poured into a, a town like Burke, but it doesn't actually change anything because it wasn't being done in collaboration. Now, the, the program that I just described, which is called Justice Reinvestment, that didn't cost a huge amount of money. It was just about bringing people together and making it consistent. Mm. <laughs> you know, we're actually wasting criminal amounts of money in doing things in the way that we do them now in isolation. So mm. I really wanted to say to governments that this is possible. We just need to believe it's possible and we need to address it like we mean it. And at the moment, I'm, you know, I'm devastated by what's happened with the fourth national action plan and the fact that we've just handballed the reduction of violence to essentially to the next generation, where we've now basically accepted that another generation of children will grow up with violent fathers or violent mothers and be, and like, how are we, how do we expect those gendered norms that are set up through those family environments to change? just through respectful relationship programs at school. You've got to interrupt the violence. Mm. That's how we change our culture. You don't just change our attitudes, you know. So that's where I'm at. And I think that there's there's momentum growing for those types of approaches. But, you know, in Victoria, even with the amazing work being um, done out of the Royal Commission, you've still got the Andrews government building more prisons, mm. you know. You've still got these solutions that are being rolled out really really quickly but without much forethought about how they're actually going to work and i just think that like there's a lot of really great knowledge out there that we just should be taking much better advantage of yeah yeah well and in this situation it's often easy to um, depersonalize these kind of issues and not see that we're all human beings in this situation and uh, we work best when we are collaborating and the best uh, element of that program um, that you talk about in the book is you know around saying that we will give you all the help that you need and you know a raft of different um, things that one might need to access in order to start to change um, you know the situation for both the victim and the perpetrator and uh, and it really is it's not just about um, you know the stick approach um, there's a really it's a far more nuanced and um, deep and 
multifaceted approach, which um, is what really makes sense when I when I read it. It seemed like that is something that which is missing and which could be a real thing to look into. Jess, I'm going to have to leave it there, and I really appreciate um, you talking this through with us. It is such a sensitive issue and I know it's um, difficult for a lot of people to talk about and also to hear. So I really appreciate you giving us your time today and your expertise, which you've clearly amassed over such a number of years now. And um, and thank you really for um, guiding us through this issue today. Thanks so much, Amy. It's a great program you've got. Thank you. That's very nice of you. (laughs) I've just been speaking with the wonderful Jess Hill, who is an investigative journalist, and she has written a book, See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control and Domestic Abuse. And I can say that we've barely scratched the surface of that book. Um, There's a lot more in there. So please don't think that we've represented even 5% of the book because there's a lot more depth and nuance than even what we've managed to cover in quite a significant interview. So I hope you're able to read it if it is something that you're interested in understanding more. And if you, whether you are male, female or however you identify, this issue affects everyone and it is not just also intimate partner relationships but it happens in family as well. There are support services. You can call 1800RESPECT, which is a national helpline, 1800 737 732, a women's crisis line, 1800 811 811. There's also a men's referral service, 1300 766 491. And of course, uh, one of those really important lines that many people would be familiar with is Lifeline, which is a 24 hour crisis line on 131 114. And um, I hope that uh, if anyone needs further information or support that they're able to um, access that.